Remember the preacher. Thank God for the preaching. I may have you sing just a stanza that in about 25 minutes here, just to remind everybody. That's good, man. We get the whole crowd together. We're gonna, that's, man, he knocked this place apart. That's super. That was really good. God bless you. Now, today we're going to come to the last chapter in the book of Proverbs uh, as far as the introduction of the book. Uh, I know, I got you worried there for a minute. You thought you missed something by missing a week. Um, and, but uh, these first seven chapters are, are, are what you would call um, preparatory in, in nature or context. Uh, they basically, uh, preparatory chapters uh, in anything or, you know, will prepare you or instruct you as to what uh, you're supposed to do to get what's in the book itself. And that's really what the first seven chapters do. I pointed it out all the way through how that, you know, you see the term in the first seven chapters, my son, over and over and over again. And uh, we have been instructed under that that concept uh, to do some some fo- the, do the following things, uh, and these things make up the goals of or should be our goals as Christians. Uh, what we ultimately want to achieve from the Book of Proverbs, and uh, I, I told you when we started this that you want to set some goals. You want to you want to learn what Proverbs will do for you, and then you want to try to accomplish that in your life. And the first seven chapters really do that. In chapter 1, we were told uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, that the primary um, goal of the book uh, is to know wisdom and instruction and to perceive the words of understanding. In chapter, uh, in chapter 1, of verse 3, we also were told that the book will help us to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment and equity. And I told you that equity in the Bible is balance. Then in chapter 1, verse 4, it said that the book of Proverbs would give subtly to the simple and to the young man knowledge and discretion. In chapter 2, we, we, we learned about the six things that if you put them into your life and you do them, that the Bible says that you'll find the knowledge of God. And remember, I told you that it wasn't just the knowledge about God, but it's the exact same knowledge that God has that you can have. In chapter 3, uh, and verses 13 through 14, we saw the Bible says, uh, Happy is the man that findeth wisdom, and the man that getteth understanding. Uh, verse 14 says, For the merchandise of it is better than the merchandise of silver, and the gain thereof than fine gold. And we talk, remember, about the true riches, and how uh, that, uh, you know, what God wanted to take those, and how they would impact our lives. In chapter 4, we saw in verse 2, he said, For I give you good doctrine, forsake not my law. Probably remember back that I took a couple of weeks on this one, and we talked about what doctrine is, uh, why it's important to have good doctrine, and very important. In chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2, we said, It says, My son, uh, attend unto my wisdom, and bow thine ear to understanding, that thou mayest regard discretion, and that thy lips may keep knowledge. And we talked about, when we got to that chapter, we talked quite a bit about discretion and discernment and how absolutely vital they are in in our lives. Chapter 6, it says, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou striketh thy hand with a stranger. How important we saw that that was. How that before you agree with something with somebody or 
co-sign for somebody or get into some kind of agreement or relationship with somebody that may cost you some money, you better make sure that, that they're your friend. And then we moved into probably one of the most practical things that we could ever see, and that was the six things that, that God hates and how that the seventh one forms what the Bible calls an abomination. We saw it from a practical aspect, and then I brought you back the week after, and I showed you how it deals in a doctrinal, prophetical way. All of this stuff now that we know in Proverbs, everything that we've looked at as we've come through these preparatory chapters here, everything in Proverbs we now know leads us to the point where it keeps us from the strange woman and the evil man. And we now know who those are. We have defined them, and we're not quite through defining them yet, but we got a very good understanding that the strange woman represents false religion, and the evil man represents the world system that is all around us. And uh, the Bible says that the book of Proverbs, when God is talking to us as his children, that it gives us the discretion and the discernment to know what is of God in our lives and what is not. And uh, it, we've talked about how that these things will entice you, they'll seduce you in a spiritual way, uh, and you will pull you away from God and, uh, and His Word. And now today, in our next chapter, chapter 7, we're going to find the last admonition to us as a son. I don't know if you've been counting them or not, but this is the 14th time that he has addressed us as my son. Uh, And this uh, with great principles that we ought to try to keep and get us through the issues of life uh, to keep us from being deceived. We also now see how that all this material has been built around, as I said, the two main threats that we face, the evil man and the strange woman. And last week, you remember, we took that passage and really developed this concept of yet again uh, how that we see uh, this concept is, is, is laid out of the deception under the guise of, of God uh, having a wife, the nation of Israel, and the evil man and the strange woman uh, pulling her aside and pulling her away from God and under the concept of spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication. And last week we saw the wrath of God being poured out uh, on them. Uh, we talked about the, the day of God's vengeance, vengeance against this evil man and this strange woman who, su- who subdued Israel, who seduced Israel, who brought her and took her away from God uh, and then got her into Baal worship. Thursday night, well, somebody asked the question, and we, we saw this woman in great detail in chapter 7 and chapter 18 of the book of Revelation. Now, let's look at this last admonition to us as God's son, and then Probably next week or the week after, uh, we're going to get one last look at this woman, but we're going to see it from another angle now. But today, let's begin reading here in Proverbs chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 4. Here's what it says. My son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee. Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her word. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you uh, for the Lord Jesus, and we thank you for uh, the folks that have come out today. We thank you for the book of Proverbs, 
And we pray, Father, that as we open it up and we begin to study it today, that uh, you'll give us the great principles. Fourteen times, Lord, we've seen where you've given us personal instruction as your son. Help us, Lord, to take it to heart. Help us, to, Lord, to believe it and to apply it. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to begin here to break this down as we have the others, and I want to show you some great principles that I think that are involved here. Verse 1 says, My son, keep my word and lay up my commandments with thee. Now, the first thing he says here is keep my words. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. For when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And when I come back here to Proverbs, it says, my son, keep my words. You ever notice how many times you find that in the Bible where God makes a reference to his words? In all the times that I've read the Bible, and I've been through it a few times, in all the times I've read the Bible, I've never found one place where I was told to keep the original autographs. Amen. I was never told one place that I was trying to keep the ideas of God yeah. or the teachings of God or the concept of God. Not one time was I ever told that as a child of God, I'm to keep the fundamentals of God or the message of God. Every time you find it, that Bible says that you and I are to keep the words of God. John chapter 14, verse 23 says, if a man love me, he'll keep my words. John chapter 15, verse 7 says, you abide in me, my words abide in you. We live in a day and age where we get this idea that, that our Bible that we have here is some lame, uh, you know, rendition off of some mystical, magical text someplace that nobody's ever read and nobody's ever held, you know, the original manuscripts, and that it's, uh, that kind of thinking is right out of the devil's playbook of Genesis chapter 3. And uh, you and I, and I want to say this this morning, you and I can have a copy of the very words of God. And the day that you and I can is the day that you and I are really in trouble. It's just that simple. And I don't think for a moment that I don't understand the issues or the argument. I certainly do. I was hammering this stuff out while most of you were in your jammies on Saturday morning watching Saturday morning comics and not on your fudgesicle. I understand what the issues are. I understand where the argument is. I've been down this road many, many, many times. My Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 23, probably one of the greatest passages uh, in the Bible on this, in verse 20, it says, the anger of the Lord shall not return. Now that'll be the second coming of Christ until he has executed, till he has performed the thoughts of his heart. That'll be the Bible. That'll be the completed Bible. He's saying that God will not execute judgment until he gives you a completed word of God. The thoughts of his heart is the Bible. But look at this. In the latter days, there's the church age, you and me. In the latter days, he shall consider it perfectly. In the latter days, you have in your hand this morning, if you have a King James 1611 authorized version, you have the complete, absolute, perfect word of God. You have the thoughts of his heart. And in the latter days before God brings his judgment, you and I can consider it perfectly. That's one of the greatest passages anywhere in the Bible. But I'm not done yet. Look at chapter 23. Let me show you the problem today. Chapter 23, verse 29. Is not my word like a fire? Amen, it is, saith the Lord. Like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? You bet it is. Therefore, behold, 
I am against the prophets, saith the Lord. Why? That steal my words from everyone his neighbor. See, God has given you a perfect book because you can't have a profitable life as a Christian without the words of God. But the devil's got prophets out there, preachers out there, churches out there that want to steal it from you. Where you should be able to consider the thoughts of God's heart perfectly in the latter days there's somebody that wants to steal God's words from you. And the idea that you can't have a perfect Bible, a translation, so to speak, of the words of God, uh, because, and I, I, I've known it, I've been around it all my life, you know. Well, you lose things when you translate from one language to another. And that's the big stick today. Well, your Bible in the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and your Bible in the New Testament is written in Greek. So uh, when you translate something, when you translate something from that, uh, you know, you're going to lose some things, so you don't get exactly the exact translation. So what you need is some Greek and Hebrew scholar to tell you what the Bible says instead of the Holy Spirit of God telling you what it says. That's where it breaks down from, exactly where it breaks down from. Now, I know that you lose some things in a translation. They call them idioms in the translating world. The idiots call them idioms. But you also obviously gain some things. Let me show you something a Greek and a Hebrew scholar never thought about. When you go back to the book of Exodus, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, and they're contesting back and forth about letting the people go, let me ask you a question. Did they speak in Egyptian or did they speak in Hebrew? Well, they spoke in Egyptian. Pharaoh didn't recognize the God of Israel. He hated the Israelites. I'm sure, you, sure that the Hebrew language was not their first choice. They spoke in Egyptian. Moses, on the other hand, was raised in Egypt. He knew the Egyptian language. And when Pharaoh and Moses had their confrontation over letting God's people go, I guarantee you, they spoke in Egyptian. But in your Bible, it's recorded in Hebrew. You know what? You didn't get exactly what they said. I'll tell you something else. When Joseph is on the throne there as Pharaoh's second in command and the brothers come in and uh, he's trying to hide himself from who they are. He's not speaking with them in Hebrew. He's speaking with them in Egyptian and it's going through a translator. You know what? It's recorded in Hebrew. You know what? You didn't get exactly what they said. I mean, it's ridiculous the argument they take. You know, we talk about the fact that the original manuscripts, uh, which ones are you talking about? In the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, you have the original set of the Old Testament Jeremiah in Hebrew. And in chapter 36 of Jeremiah, verse 23, a scholar by the name of Dr. Jehudi took a penknife out, cut out the portions that he didn't like, and started throwing them in the fire. It tells you that. By the time he got done of throwing in the fire what he didn't like, there wasn't anything left of it. So there goes the original out the window. Then you find that there was a second set of Jeremiah's originals, and you'll find in chapter 51, verse 61, they got thrown in the river. You got a copy of it in your Bible. That means there had to be a third copy, and the Bible tells you that they didn't match. None of them matched. None of them said exactly the same thing. You didn't get exactly what they said. But do you know what you do got? You got exactly what God wanted you to have. Now that's where you got to go with it. The first rule in Bible study. The first rule in Bible study. Rule number one 
in Bible study is never emphasize anything more than God does or never de-emphasize anything more than God does. All this talk about the original manuscript, the original manuscript. You've got to have the original manuscript, the Greek and the Hebrew. Let me tell you something. You got what God wanted you to have exactly, perfectly, without any error. God cares absolutely nothing about the original manuscript. You say, on what basis do you say that? Because nobody's got them today. The only records that they have of the Word of God in Greek or Hebrew, it starts around 400 A.D. for the New Testament. Nobody's got them. I'll give you four ways you know that the words of God you got in your hand today are superior to the original autograph. Now, I know when I say that. 99.9999% of the preachers don't believe that in this city and around this country. None of the Bible scholars do. My answer to that is this. Thursday night at 7 o'clock, come on in and we'll talk about it. Because the bottom line is I'll give you four ways the words of God that you have in your hand are superior to the original autograph. Number one, you have it in your hand and you read it. You can't read the originals. You couldn't read them if if you had them in your hand. I'll tell you the second reason why I know it's superior. 200 billion people at least have been saved by this one. Nobody ever got saved by the original autographs. I'll tell you the third one. The Bible means book. You got a collection of 66 books that mean Bible. That's what the word means. There was never a time in history on this planet, Mars, Venus, Mercury, or any combination of planets in the Milky Way galaxy were ever, the original manuscripts were ever, ever, ever together in one book. That doesn't even exist as a Bible. I'll tell you the fourth one. The originals are not profitable for doctrine. Only the scriptures are, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable doctrine. You're not going to suggest to me that the original manuscripts were Scripture, are you? Before they weren't. Listen, you have here in your hands, in a King James 16 authorized version, the very words of God. And uh, in the latter days of the church age, you and I can consider the thoughts of God's heart and consider it perfectly. Inspiration, inspiration, inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Well, gee whiz, guys, what good is it that God inspired something a long time ago if I can't get my hands on it today? I'm not care what God did 2,000 years ago. I don't care what he did 4,000 years ago in inspiring something. I need it today. I need it tomorrow, and I need it for my family. Then he says up the second things. He says, lay up my commandments with thee. Lay up, store up, hide it in your heart. Last week I told you about the holy things of God, the dedicated things. How that the kings of Israel uh, had special things that they kept in the house of God. That God was special to God. They were dedicated to Him. They were holy to Him. And I showed you how that's a picture of that in your life and my life as Christians. There needs to be some things that are holy things in our lives. Things that we don't allow the world to have. Things that we don't share with the world. And I know that in a normal Christian life, we have to, we have to go with the world and, and we have to have an involvement in it to a certain degree. I understand all of that. But the things that was Israel's demise will be the same thing that will be your and my demise is when we take those holy things and dedicated things and take them out of the treasury house of our heart and we display them and give them to the world system. 
Hey, I understand the Christian life is a hard balance. I do. The balance of what we allow and how we, much we let the world have of us that only belongs to God, that are dedicated to Him. And most of God's people have no clue what those things either even are. I know that in the world that we live in, you have to have associations. You have to have things that people you work with, the job that you do. We can't live in a little Christian bubble. We can't just be around all of Christians all the time. Our job is to evangelize the world, and by doing that, we got to go out and be in the world to some degree. But we have to decide how much we're going to allow the world to have our, much of our lives we're going to let them have. Look at verse 2. Keep thy commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Keep my commandments and live. In the Old Testament, that would be physical life, wouldn't it? That'd be physical life. How many times I've seen that happen in the Old Testament, where God come down and killed them by the hundreds? Exodus chapter 32 comes to my mind, where the, Moses is up on the mountain getting the, getting the Ten Commandments. He comes down, and, and the golden calf is being made, and everybody's having a great time, and everybody's going to, just going nuts on it. And uh, he comes down, he's out mangr- he throws those things down. They get busted. They get broke. And then God comes down in chapter 32, verse 28, and the Bible says God kills 3,000 of them. There's a place where God kills people physically in the Old Testament because they didn't keep his commandments. Now, God's people today get killed spiritually. They get killed spiritually. Don't you think for a moment that a child of God who's saved and on his way to heaven can't wind up a spiritual suicide? Don't ever think for a moment that a child of God who's saved and on the way to heaven can't die spiritually. You may go to heaven for the rest of your life because you're eternally saved. I'm talking about dying in your personal relationship with Christ of doing what God's called you to do. I'm talking about you walking out the door from God and embracing the world, embracing all the world has, embracing the booze, embracing the drugs, embracing the world system. Yeah, you're still a child of God, but spiritually, as far as God using you, you're dead. In my 40-plus years of preaching, I've seen many casualties. I've seen many tragedies. I've seen many marriages break up. I've seen lots of suicide, more than I would like to have seen. I've seen many Christian parents completely lose their kids. I've seen Christians who at one time loved God, loved church, and now uh, won't even talk to Him anymore, won't even go to the house of God. This happens all the time in New Testament Christianity. And where in the Old Testament they died physically. In the New Testament, Christians die spiritually. You die spiritually inside. You have no personal walk with God anymore. Oh, you're God's child. You're still on your way to heaven. But inside, you're dead as far as the things of God. And this happens all the time in New Testament Christianity. And every time I've seen a spiritual death, every time in all of my years in dealing with people and dealing with problems and dealing with the heartaches and dealing with the tragedies and the broken marriages and the busted up families and all the personal issues that come along with it, in every single case, there's never been an exception where I have not seen a spiritual death that was not a self-inflicted wound. People who quit serving God, quit the ministry, Quit going to church. They're always going to blame it on something else or somebody else. 
see it all the time. Well, I'm not going to minister today because uh, I'm, 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 I'm mad at you. I'm mad about this. I'm mad about that. Deep down inside, let me give you some peace of mind. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with inside of them. They know they're not right with God. They know they've not been doing the right thing, but they don't have the courage to deal with it, so they blame it on somebody else. It's just that simple. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I love your song. Thank God for the preaching. Listen, nothing, and I mean nothing, nobody, not anybody, no matter what they have done to you, what they have said about you, what they have said to you, no matter what extent uh, circumstances in your life, should ever affect you that way to the point that you give up and quit. I've had people say, well, I don't go to church. I've had a bad experience in church one time, and I just don't go anymore. I always ask them. I had a bad experience at a restaurant one time. I never eat out anymore either. It becomes so lame in our excuses. Well, I had a bad experience at work, so I don't ever work again. I mean, it, where, where, you, you can't allow what somebody else says about you or the circumstances or anything keep you from being what God wants you to be. Somebody said one time, well, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church. Well, there's one less if you don't go. Now, do you want to know how never to quit? Do you want to know how to get to that point in your life where you never quit? You never give up. You never throw in the towel. You never walk away. No matter who does what to you or who lets you down or who hurts you or hurts your feelings or who says something about you or in maybe some cases who holds you accountable when you don't want to be accountable. It's right here in the text. You know, how do you keep from, from ever quitting when, when, it come, when, when who or what in, tries to entice you to quit? Tries to seduce you spiritually to quit? Well, look at the last part of verse 2. Keep God in his book as the apple of your eye. That's how. Keep God in his word as your main focus. All you need is him in that book. I mean, if anybody had a right to give up and quit, dump the ant farm, as we preached a couple of weeks ago, based on how people treat him and what they say about him, how they get mad at him, how they hate him, how they blame him. If anybody has a right to quit, it's God. Well, I'm mad at God. Well, I blame God for this. Why did God let this happen? I mean, come on. You think you got some issues this morning? Because people don't like you or they talk about you? How about 20 million times a day, at least, your name is used as a cuss word. How about 20 million times a day, at least, your son's name is used as a cuss word? And it is. How about all of the filthy jokes and all of the movies that they make about you as God who drag your holiness down and, and display it like human beings? 
I think of the stupid movie that came out years ago with George Burns, and it's probably a good last name because that's probably what he's doing right now. Amen. Oh, God, that a cigar-smoking, dirty old man, unregenerate, could come down in a movie, pretend to be God. How about Jim Carrey when Bruce Almighty displaying God as somebody who has the power to blow up a woman's dress so you can look up underneath of it? How do you think God thinks about those kind of things? And you know what's even worse? I know many of God's people that went to watch those kind of godless stuff and laughed at it, thought it was funny when it was your God they were making fun of. Thank God for the preaching. You help me out every once in a while here if I can look your way because I'm not sure they're getting it today. I'm telling you. How about, how about his own people, the nation of Israel? 4,000 years of him only doing good to them, bringing them out of the bondage of Egypt, giving them everything they needed, giving a land to them and setting them as his people above every nation on this planet. And they crucified him. How about those New Testament sons of God? The sacrifice you made for them, all you do for them, how to help them, provide for them. When they didn't have nothing, you gave them a job, you gave them a home, you gave them this, you gave them that. You brought them through all the things that you did. Their life was a mess, their life was a travesty, and yet you turned it around and you put them on the right path. And they'll sell you out so fast that you only want your head and swim. They'll sell you out for a ball game. They'll sell you out for a late night Saturday night. They'll sell you out for a pack of cigarettes. They'll sell you out for drugs. They'll sell you right for a six-pack of booze. They'll find a gal or a guy that they should never have any relationship with, and God, they'll drop you like a bad habit. If anybody has a right to walk away and throw in the towel, it's him. It's him. It's him. And you know God just why God just didn't throw in the towel? And I'll be honest with you. There's times in the Bible, from my standpoint, it looks like he got pretty close. I look at Genesis chapter 6 at the flood of Noah. There had to be 6 or 7, 8 billion people on this planet. He killed them all but 8. That's getting close. <laughs> Do you know why God just didn't throw in the towel like so many of God's people do? like so many of us do. Do you know why? Because his son and his word is the apple of his eye. That's why. Christ is the apple of God's eye. Apples in the Bible are a picture of the word of God. Look at Psalm, Song of Solomon 8.5 or Lamentations 2.18 or Proverbs 17.8, Zechariah 2.8, Proverbs 25.11, Song of Solomon 7.8 and Song of Solomon 2.3. It's all through the Bible. You know, an apple a day keeps the strange woman and evil man away. That's the concept. You see, God focuses on what's right. God focuses on what's holy. The apple of God's eye is what is precious to him, what is true, what is pure. God never gets sidetracked with things that don't matter. This, my dear friend, is the essence of getting the book of Proverbs. 
This is the absolute importance of getting the discretion and the discernment and the wisdom and the understanding that Proverbs gives us and from Proverbs chapter 2 that we get the knowledge of God. Not the knowledge about God, the very same knowledge God has. Otherwise, you will quit. My life has been filled with God's people who I look at and I've seen how God, where God brought them from, what God did for them, the cesspool he brought them out of, how he turned their life around, how, and at the drop of a hat, they'll dump God, they'll dump their family, they'll dump everything that they've got going and go right back to that dog going back to his vomit. Excuse me for being so gross. The fact is, my dear friend, when your eye is focused on Christ and as the number one thing in your life, the apple, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, there'll be nothing that will get you to quit. There'll be nothing that will take that place. No job, no career, no boy, no girl, no guy, no woman. No enticement of this world whatsoever will ever compare or run in the race for a second with what should be the apple of your eye. And our problem today is we're focused on the wrong things. We go along good with God for a while. But then when it gets comfortable, you know, we start getting in this and doing all this and we start to start to coast. It's a natural thing. And that is the most dangerous place that you and I could ever get. I, I could ensure in a heartbeat that you would never walk away from God again if I could just do it. I just trade places with you for about three or four months. Let you be in my place with the people who hate you, with the people who come after you. With the people who will be at your heels like every ravenous rabbit dog you ever saw in your life. It forces you to stay focused. It forces you to keep in your life the things because the best way you can ever, ever, ever stay true to God is have somebody hunting you down. You get soft. It gets easy. God comes down, fixes your marriage. God comes down and takes your addiction away. God comes down and gives you this, gives you a good job, starts taking care of things in your life. You start to get into the Bible, start to do some things, start feeling pretty good about yourself. Nothing wrong with none of that. But then it happens. You start coasting. And one by one, those old things begin to creep back into your life. And you know what? You're so obvious, you can see it. I, I talked to a, a, a gal yesterday that I hadn't seen in church for three or four weeks. Maybe you can't. Maybe it's just because I've been in this business too long. I can spot an out of fellowship Christian five miles away. I, I, I can just look at one day what the countenance that they would had and what they got today. I talked to this gal last night, gave her a hug. and said, man, I haven't seen you for a couple, about a month now. And she says, yeah, she says that this has happened and this has happened, but that's all done now. And she came over, you know, and, and said goodbye and everything. And I said, oh, oh, great, I'm glad. I'll see you in the morning. Never said a word. You know, when I say to you, I'll see you in the morning, and you don't say amen, I know there's a problem someplace. Well, that may be a small thing to you, but you can't tell me you're not going to be there tomorrow, so you just say nothing. If you were going to be here, you'd have said, I'll be there. 
I'll be there. Nothing is says more than a, nothing is louder. Nothing is more ear shattering or deafening than silence. Well, I'll see you in the morning. And I, and I came around the other way. One more time I said, man, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I'm telling him. Our problem today, we get focused on the wrong things. We focus on our career. We'll focus on ourselves. We'll allow somebody who used to be in our life that shouldn't be back in our life anymore sneak back in. Because you get lonely. I understand loneliness. I understand how single people can get lonely. Do you know what's worse than being single and being lonely? It's being married to the wrong person and living in a hell on earth for the rest of your life. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. The rest of your life part, I mean. We're focused on what people think and what people do, say to us. Not what Christ is doing with us. You know why? That's why Christ isn't doing anything with you. And I'll tell you the next thing. The first thing you see when somebody is out of ministry, boy. Well, this was really important. I ain't going today. Now, like, we're not stupid and we don't know that there's something wrong. Well, I'm not going today. Well, you didn't come last time. You don't do what you used to do anymore. But you see, we're dumb. We're stupid. You're Mr. Smart Guy. You're Miss Smarty Pants. You think you got it all figured out. You think we're just dumb and stupid over here. If any man love God, the same is known of him. And if any man doesn't love God, the same is known of him. Now, in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and you want to turn here, you'll find a great illustration of this in verses 1, 2, and 3. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. As the lily among the thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved son, beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now right there, that's a picture of what our true fellowship should be. Sitting down with Christ under the apple tree, under the shade and the comfort of the wings of Almighty God, and enjoying the fruit. And what it is, brother, not, when, you, when, when it is, nothing will ever you trade that for. Not a thing. Nothing will ever make you lose it. During World War II, the Andrews sisters, now I got to... I don't want to hear anymore that I'm outdated. <laughs> because I know who Tom Jones was last week, and you do not. That is not my issue. That is your issue. <laughs> the fact that you don't stay up on these. I told you about the song Delilah, Tom Jones. He was a great singer. Still is. Still alive. Does out in Las Vegas shows all the time now. But I had a thousand people say I didn't know who he was. Now, if you don't know who he was, I wouldn't admit that. <laughs> the Andrew sisters. Oh, yeah. Anybody know who the Andrew sisters were? Yeah. 
Let me see your hand here. I need some help. You know who the Andrews sisters are. Thank you very much. Gary knows. The Andrews sisters had a song during World War II. You know what that song was? Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. How many know that song? Oh, I love this. I love this. Say, see it again. All right, listen, you guys are real and stand up now. We're going to sing it to the rest of the crowd here. Come on, come on, come on. Now, we're going to show it because they don't know it. We got we to gotta teach these young ones a good song. Come on, stand up. Don't be bashful. I don't have time to waste with you. Stand up. Do you know the song? I don't know. Okay, I got a part for you. Stand up. Now, when we get to a certain part here, it goes, don't sit on the apple tree, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and then we get to a point, when I point to you, you, you got to say, no, 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 okay? okay. You do that? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, don't screw it up. No, sir. Okay. <laughs> I don't think everybody's standing. <laughs> All right, here we go. Well, show you best you now. All right, now we're getting honest here. Now, just listen. Now, let's listen. Follow. Here we go. Ready? Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me. Get ready now. Anybody else but me. Anybody else but me. No, no, no. Don't sit under the apple tree with anybody else but me till I come marching home. Okay, now very good job. Good job. Good job. All right. All right. Now you got it. Now that's it. That was a great song back then. And I'll tell you what your problem is, my dear misguided friend this morning. You have been sitting under the apple tree with somebody else other than him. And there's your problem. There's the problem of everything that we get into. You threw your fellowship with him out the door, Revelation 3.10. For what? For who? And you, and you wonder why you have issues. You wonder why you're struggling today. You wonder why you're having problems in your marriage or you're having problems here or you're having problems there. You wonder why you're, you've lost that edge that you once had with God. You wonder why you've got to now pretend that everything is okay when everybody around you knows that it's not. Your problem is simply in its simplest form, easy to understand, doesn't have to go to the Greek and Hebrew, and we don't need the original manuscripts, and we don't need to be a Bible theologian to figure it out. You have been sitting under the apple tree with somebody else. Amen. Now look at verse 3. Bind them upon thy fingers and write them upon the tables of thine heart. Bind them upon thy fingers. Now, that'll be in the context. This will be like the little leather pouches, you remember, that the priest had on their fingers and their hands and put them on their foreheads that contained Scripture. That was their answer to your three-by-five cards that you use today, you know. They put them on their foreheads. You put them on your refrigerator or your dashboard of your car. You wouldn't look too cool walking around with a three-by-five card pasted on the front of your forehead. But he said, bind them upon thy fingers and write them on the tables uh, of thine heart. And, of course, the fingers uh, is, always represents, uh, you know, what you find in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, and Deuteronomy 11 18. They, they wore those on the backs of their hands, on their fingers, those little leather boxes, and they wore them on their forehead. Verse 3 says, uh, write them on the tables uh, of your heart. The table, your heart, is where you lay out your Bible. We have tables across the back for those of you who maybe want to get a little more involved and, and put your Bible out flat and get some things done. You have to have a table to do that. And you can fool around with the Bible all you want, but if you really want to get the Bible down, you've got to sit at a table, open it up, and lay that thing out. That table is a picture of your heart. You want to get something done with the Bible? You better put it on the tables of your heart. It's just that simple. The Word of God is central in your life and in my life in two areas. One, fingers. 
Fingers in the Bible will always be a reference to your work for God. He said in Psalms 8, 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Psalms 144, 1 says, Blessed is the Lord my strength, which teacheth my hands to war and my fingers to fight. Deuteronomy 9, 10 says that the Ten Commandments were written by the finger of God. Then the second thing is your heart. The heart will always be what you think about God, your attitude, your love for Him, the holy things, the dedicated things. And simply when you look at this verse in light of these two things, it's simply this. What you do for God with your fingers will be in direct proportion to your love for God in your heart. It's just that simple. Verse 4 says, Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. Now the Bible says that wisdom and understanding should be like a sister to us, uh, and a kinswoman. That's an aunt. And uh, this is one of the greatest, I think, practical principles that you'll ever get out of the book of Proverbs, especially if you're a young mom and dad parent or somebody that's trying to train up your children and raise up your family uh, and teach them right. And uh, here's what he's saying. And it's real simple. If you don't have this by this verse, you need to put this here. He says, say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. In a practical approach, it's simply this. You better make wisdom and understanding part of your family. You better make wisdom and understanding as a young couple raising children part of your family. I've watched a lot of parents make some really bad choices with their children. See it all the time. Not just by not teaching them the Bible and doing right in that case, but by the message that they send to their children, but what they allow them to associate with. And you know me, I'm not saying for a second that everything that your child does has to certainly revolve around church. That wouldn't be practical. I know that's not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they can't ever be involved in outside activities other than church. I think anybody who says that would be very misguided in trying to put that principle across. But brother, I'm going to tell you something. There needs to be a smart balance in that concept. And I realize that probably what I'm about to say is none of my business. So I'll just say it and then it'll be none of my business. You know, for some reason, it's never in any of my business till you lose your kid and you want me to fix it for you. Then it becomes my business. If you just listen to me now and make it part of your business, maybe we could not have the other business, which is monkey business, and then there will be any business we have to do. I don't know what I just said there, but I think it was really important. <laughs> we all have to be aware in America of the potential risk of terrorism in this country. We live in perilous times. As you and I go to sleep tonight or we go down to turn around and restart or tonight some of you enjoy your family and John preaches down at the mission and A.J. gives his testimony and you go home tonight and we have fun and laugh and talk. As you lay your head to sleep tonight, we don't like to think about it, but there are people in this world who lay wide awake tonight planning on killing you. And every American they can. I don't think anybody understands, and I think it's because we don't want to in America, but I don't think anybody really understands the trouble we're in in this country. I mean, we've got border agents down on the Mexican border babysitting 3,500 babies 
want a drug cartel or putting illegal criminals and drugs across the border, but we're watching babies. We're going to, we spent, what, 4,000 young men's lives giving up in Afghanistan, uh, not Afghanistan, but in Iraq when we took out uh, Saddam Hussein and, 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 and all of that mess. And now it's going to go right back and it's going to be worse than it was before we ever went in. All it would have taken would have been a phone call to me from anybody in Washington, and I could have told them where this thing would have wound up because the Bible makes it very clear the people you're dealing with. But you see, we're past that. This country, right now as we speak, there's people all across this world who hate everything that we stand for. If they would come in here right now and could get away with it, and pretty soon they probably will. They'd, they'd rape every woman before they would murder her. They would behead every man that is in here. They would sadistically, brutally kill all your children. They would kill everybody because we are the infidels, and they are on a holy war of jihad, and they are going to wipe out at, at length. Look at 9-11. Look at the Marine barracks in Beirut, Lebanon. You can go right down through history of all the things that have happened. They're willing to trade their life for yours. You realize how hard it is to stop somebody when he's willing to die to take your life? It's almost impossible. They'll wrap themselves with plastic explosives, go to a, go to a, a, a great crowd of people like a Chiefs game or a hockey game. Probably not a Royals game, but you're probably <laughs> safe there. But, they, but they, they, they wrap themselves in explosives. So one person is willing to trade his life to kill everybody that he can within a radius. And they just don't think about it from 2 o'clock to 3. It's a 24-7 visual. No, no, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if the president would have called me, if the national security advisors would have called me, here's what I'd have told them. I'd have said, fellas, I respect you and I want to help you, but let me just tell you something. Let me give you a little bit of history. No nation on the face of this planet has ever survived more than 200 years after they dumped the King James 1611 authorized version. England didn't. Germany didn't. France didn't. Nobody did. There was a time when Czechoslovakia was 100% almost born-again people. They don't even know where the Bible is today. And gentlemen, our country is 126 years into dumping that book because we dumped it officially in 1888 in Sarasota, Florida with the Southern Baptist Convention, dumped the King James Bible and brought in it. No nation on this planet has survived after they dropped the Word of God more than 200 years. And we are 126 years into that. And you're wondering why things are falling apart? You're wondering why, you know, well, like all the kids. You know how many times week after week now that kids take guns to school and kill their teachers and kill other students? And why is everybody scratching your head and saying, what's the deal? You take the Bible out, they'll bring the guns in. What's so hard to get with that? This is where we're at. As you enjoy your day today and you enjoy your week next week, you need to understand there's people out there that if they could smuggle a dirty bomb or a nuclear device in Kansas City, they live for one thing, and that is to kill as many of us as they can. I look at the Homeland Security and the FBI and the CIA and the special ops community and even our local law enforcement. 
I have nothing but praise and respect for those guys. Those guys lay it on the line every day of their life to keep all of us safe. And you've heard it said many, many times, in, in terrorism, we got to get it right every time. A terrorist only has to be right one in a thousand. One in two thousand. Thousand people die. We have to get it right every time. We can't afford to wake one mistake. We can't overlook one container. We can't, we got to look at every suitcase. We got to look at a person who said was just a normal person, and then we, we just cannot let that person pass through. And I know people that, you know, they used to say, well, you know, they're patting down women, and, and then the terrorists saw that, so they started strapping bombs on women. When my uncle was in Vietnam, the Koreans used to put grenades in babies' diapers and have the little babies walk over to the GIs for candy and kill three or four GIs. Every cargo ship. Take every threat seriously. A hundred percent seriously. They're our enemy. And only have to be right one time out of a thousand and hundreds, if not thousands of people will die. I can't even think of a more impossible situation. The trillions of dollars that we spend wearing out our men and our women who so bravely uh, investigate these things. And all they do is sit back and wait. All they do is know how they get us ragged and we miss one thing. Just one thing. One out of 10,000. And that's all they need. Parents, you better listen to me. Just as there are terrorists who want to destroy you and me in this country, there's an evil man and a strange woman who wants at every corner to abduct your children from you. If you're out in a park, you're out there with your kids and they're playing around, you never walk across the street and see somebody. You don't ever take your eyes off of them. You're always watching where they're at. You're always knowing what they're doing. You don't turn your back for five minutes because that's all it takes for somebody to snatch them up and be gone. And in a spiritual sense, in everything we do, in every place you go, you have to know that the world system wants to divide your family. It wants to destroy your child. And it's so subtle. It's absolutely so subtle. Things out there in the world, and I'm not saying you don't, but I, when I grew up, and I never, and I'm not saying you don't, I'm just, I'm just telling you, you have to be aware of how it's in everything. I remember growing up and watching Saturday morning comics, and it wasn't until years later that it hit me when I got into the Bible, how subtle that is. I used to watch Porky Pig, Donald Duck, Heckle and Jekyll, Wile E. Coyote. They used to be my favorites. And then one day I realized that every one of those animals were an unclean animal out of Leviticus chapter 11. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch those. I'm saying it's everywhere. Your kids don't mess so much with that today. Now they got the He-Men. Now they got the Captain America, Captain this and Captain that and the He-Men. Those are the guys out of Genesis chapter 6. I'm not saying they shouldn't have them. I'm not saying you go home and have a He-Man Genesis chapter 6 bonfire. I'm not suggesting that at all. I'm telling you it's in everything. It's in everything they do. They're faced with it all the time. Every place they go. And it's so subtle. I told you about the Mormons last week and, and Pranit Kolob and the black people being there and, and all the heresy and all the goofy stuff that they teach. 
And yet, I didn't get into it this morning last week, but you know, uh, everybody saw the movie Battlestar Galactica, and everybody saw the series Battlestar Galactica, and nobody would even know that Glenn Larson, who's the guy who wrote all of that, he's a Mormon, and when he wrote Battlestar Galactica about a distant planet with life on it that was good, and a distant planet with evil, he based it on Mormon doctrine. It's everywhere. It will start with the innocent things that look 100% okay because they are when they're kept in balance. Mel used to say, there's nothing wrong with playing golf. There's nothing wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with bowling. There's nothing wrong with this. Except when you do it on Sunday morning. He's there everywhere and everything. And just like our federal government with faith with terror, I'll tell you something, parents, you got to get it right every time. You got to get it right every time. Instead of helping with the abduction. I've seen, I've seen parents, and I, there's nothing wrong with this. Don't understand. I've seen parents encourage their kids in sports over the years. And I've seen them get those kids so involved. I've seen them get those kids where they wanted to get a college scholarship or they wanted this or they wanted a notoriety. Many times it was the father just vicariously experiencing what he wanted to do because he wanted to be that. And I've seen them push them. I've seen them get them so involved. And I've seen them when the games are on Sunday, uh, months at a time or Thursday night, and they just completely lose their priority system. And they instill in that child at 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 that there's things that are more important in the house of God and at 19 and 20 when they don't want to go to church anymore you'll actually scratch your head and wonder what happened you were an accomplice in the abduction of your child you drove the getaway car because it's wholesome because it's family orientated because it's this You think it's okay, and I'm not saying it's not okay. I'm saying you have to know that at every turn and every corner, there's somebody out there that wants to take your child and send them to hell, and you have to work setting the right priorities, the right values, the core values, setting up the biblical priorities, making wisdom and understanding part of your family. The decisions that they make at 19 and 20 will be totally depend on a level of commitment they sought you at 8 and 9. Your excuses about not going to church will become their excuses. Your lackadaisical attitude will become their lackadaisical attitude. Your indifference to the things of God will become their indifference to the things of God. Your value system will be transferred right into their little lives When you're too tired to go to church because you've been doing your thing all week, there'll come a time when they see that, that they'll be too tired to come to church. When you put the priorities in your life and you show them this is more important than being God's house on Sunday morning, you'll rule that day someday, I'm telling you, if it continues on and just keeps going and going and going. And as parents and as Christians, we live in a time period where in almost everything we do, we have to get it right. And yet I know we can't. There's no way we can. But I'm telling you, folks, I'm telling you, 
just as there's people out there that want to destroy this country and destroy you, there's an evil man and a strange woman that wants you. It wants to bust up your marriage. It wants to tear apart your family. It wants, and the kids are always the one that suffer in those things. And they want to rip it apart. And they want to claim those kids. And they want to take that marriage. And they want to divide it. And they want to conquer it. This is what Proverbs does for us. This is what the issues of life are all about. Verse 5 says that all of this, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger that flattereth with her words. She looked so good. It looked so innocent. It looked so good. It looks like, wow, wow, we get to have a family time. We get to have this. We get to have that. But it's more than that. It's the priorities that we set, that we give to those kids. That they come away saying, well, mom and dad don't think church is important. If you don't think the devil won't use that and use that against you down the line someplace, you're a fool. You're a fool. The reason now that in chapter 1 through 7, 14 times he addresses us specifically as my son, giving us the preparatory material the insights of how to get to the place in our lives to get it right 100% of the time. It's, not, it's a much harder thing to do in America with terrorism because nobody believes the Bible anymore. We are supposed to believe the Bible. The Bible is supposed to be the number one book in our lives. We're supposed to be focused on those things. But it's so easy to get off task. It's so easy to blame God or get mad at God or get this or get that and, get, and lose your focus when this old book does not become the apple of your eye and you don't spend that time under the apple tree with him. The wisdom books in the Bible are simply that, the books that give us God's wisdom to live above the circumstances of life, to be able to sidestep everything that's coming your way, not only in your personal life but in your family, with your children. You hear me say it all the time, smarter than the problem. And it isn't a matter that you're smarter than the problem or not smarter than the problem. The matter is you get your own attitude out of whack, and then it doesn't matter anymore. And that's where the devil gets into details. The greatest thing the devil can ever know, I deal with it all the time in dealing with people, his standard tactic. He did it all the way back. He got it out of the playbook of Joshua with God's plan when he took the land. But the greatest thing the devil ever took that God ever did, all down through history. He did it with Israel. He did it with the church. He did it with everybody. And he does it with family. He does it with individuals. Divide and conquer. Once he divides your family, he can conquer your family. Once he divides you from your walk with God, he'll conquer you. Once he divides you from the principles of the word of God with your family, he'll conquer your kids. It's just that simple. This is how churches go to pieces. This is why they fall apart. This is why they, they, they get divided. You never notice that we don't have any political issues around here? I mean, everybody gets their little squabbles every once in a while. There ain't no big church fights here because the church fights can't exist here. You know, if somebody, you know, gets the idea that they don't like this or don't like that, they don't stay here. The preaching's too hot. Amen. You're, you're missing your point here. What was the song? Yeah, all right. I like you to do what I tell you to do, if it's all right with you. <laughs> Next week, we're going to finish out this chapter, I think, as the final look at this strange woman. And I'm going to show you from another angle now. 
where last time we saw it that she was a wife being taken away from God as God's wife. In chapter 7, now we see the reversal. Now she's God's son who gets seduced by a harlot. And boy, the principles between the two pictures, some great stuff. And uh, this chapter, number 7 here, uh, as Israel is God's son being taken by the women of the world, woman of the world, is a great picture spiritually of the world pulling us away from God. So we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll be...